Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mosk, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing Yuri on Ice, Liar by Justine Marbelessier, and The Women Men Don't See by James Tiptree Jr. Hello and welcome to episode four, The Bastards Lying to You. I'm Alex, the unreliable narrator. I'm Freya, and I'm the unreliable narrator. I'm Macy, and I am absolutely, definitely telling you the truth. Well, whatever we are, we are definitely three red-headed fantasy authors. Unless one or more of us dyes their hair red, which might be the case. And today we're talking about lying liars who lie, both intentionally and otherwise. This is one of my most favorite tropes of all time. <laughs> I am so excited. But first, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I am still in the middle of Lotus Blue by Cat Sparks. So I'm still reading that one, which is the climate change dystopia sentient machinery set in a desert one, which is really good so far. And thanks to Alex, I have also fallen down the rabbit hole of rereading Person of Interest fanfic. Thanks, Alex. Listen, you are not going to catch me. I have too yes. much to do. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. No, no, I refuse. Um, I have had a very productive reading week. I finished three books. Ooh. I finished, I read The Bells, which I was talking about uh, the other week. And I read Liar for this episode, which I'm very excited to talk about. And I also read a 114,000 word Yuri on Ice fanfic, which I am absolutely going to count as having read a book because that's a book. That, that's yes, a book. I agree. Yep. I agree. And it's a really, really good fanfiction so too. Uh, and we're going to be talking about it in this episode. I, of course, am still reading nothing except person of interest fanfiction, but never mind that. Ah, girls, unreliable narrators are the best thing in the world. I love them so much. We know. Do you? Have I have I told you enough how much I love unreliable narrators? Because I really do. I'm not do. sure, Alex. I'm not sure that I can trust you on this point. Do you think that I'm being unreliable about unreliable narrators? This is one of the most reliable things about me. This and how I keep putting economics in all my books. That sounds like something a liar would say. Okay. Well, as is tradition, the first thing that we do is define our terms. So what is an unreliable narrator? What are the three types of unreliable narrator? And why are they so great? So an unreliable narrator basically is a narrator who is unreliable. Wow. Okay, Alex. You're welcome. <laughs> Expand on your terms. I am an expert on this. <laughs> I <laughs> have a lot of expertise about this subject. I have written two entire books with extremely unreliable narrators of two different varieties. So an unreliable narrator is someone who is misrepresenting the truth in some way. The three types of unreliable narrator that we have are the person who is lying to you intentionally, the person who is lying to you but doesn't know it themselves, and the person who just doesn't know what the fuck is going on around them and so is misrepresenting the situation because of their own ignorance. So each of these are, are really, really cool. And you can get some really amazingly deep character study when you start noticing which of your characters are unreliable. And when you start realizing that really, we're all unreliable narrators. Nobody has a perfectly objective view of the world. Nobody has an ability to relate their experiences without bias. And that's really what it comes down to, is bias of some fashion or another. Well, I think for some of them, but not necessarily for all of them, right? So the first book I think we were going to talk about as one of these examples is a book called Liar by Justine Labelestier. And I just finished reading this and I absolutely love it because pretty much the first thing the character tells you up front is that she's going to lie to you. She starts out by saying that in the past she's been a liar and that's how she's defined herself, but now she's definitely telling you the truth and she's not going to lie to you, the gentle reader, because you're special. And then obviously that gets deconstructed as the book goes along. Right. Yes, I've only I've only read about 15% of Liar at this point. I got 
distracted with person of interest fan fiction. I am not proud of it. <laughs> but yeah, so I was I was reading this and I started having some like interesting theories because of course I am fixated on unreliable narrators all of the time. And before we go any further, listeners, we will be spoiling this book. So if you are planning on reading this book, if you want to be surprised by this book, stop listening to the episode. Yes. Go read the book and then come back yes. come back because they're about to spoil me entirely and you. Fair warning. Yes, pretty much everything we talk about on this podcast we will spoil thoroughly and in many entertaining ways. Indeed, yes. So the basic premise of this book is that the title character, the liar, um, her boyfriend is dead and she is trying to tell you what happened and why he's dead. So far in reading this book, I am trying to spot where she's lying and where she isn't. And the theory that I have right now is that when she stops using contractions, then she starts lying. Okay. Honestly, I, I was not reading it closely enough to take note of where she was using contractions and where so she was. So there's, there's a line towards the beginning of the book, which may was the line that made me spot this. And she says, I cannot think of any reason to kill him. I think that's an emphasis thing. And I don't know if it's to do with contractions, but I agree. I read the book twice now. I read it once quite soon after it came out. And I read it again this week in preparation for this episode. And I do think you're right that whenever she says something very emphatically or she restates it or there's a certain amount of repetition in a segment, that's when you, you go on guard right. because you think, who is she trying to convince of this and why is she so insistent? It's like somebody who opens a sentence with, look, to tell you the truth, and you immediately go, ooh, really? Especially because the wonderful thing about this book, and I think the very clever way that it's written and structured, is because there is this constant tension between truth and fiction because you know from day, from the fir very first page that almost anything she's saying, she might later then turn around and say, actually, I was lying to you about that, and that happens multiple times in the book. So yeah. you can't actually trust anything, which makes it an incredibly page-turnery kind of read, an incredibly tense story, because you're trying to keep track of which parts are in the, the inner story that you're building, which ones you think are true, which parts she said are true, and you're trying to hold the whole picture in your mind. But I agree, I think that emphasis puts you on guard and makes you think, why is she being so emphatic about this in particular? Who is she trying to convince? And I wonder if this is a tactic that works particularly well because it's a thriller, right? So, like... Yes. We see this in, in mystery books and spy movies and other kinds of thriller movies. One example that I've enjoyed a while back was the movie version of Gone Girl. I don't know if either of you saw that. Yes, and I've read it as well. Have you read the book? I haven't, but I, I, I really enjoyed the... It, it leads you to believe one thing, and then it completely turns the tables on you. And I think that that's a tactic that uh, we see happen multiple times in this book. Yes, absolutely. But there's this particular moment where Mika says, I did not kill Zack. And the moment that she says it like that, that emphatically, is the moment I thought, hang on. She definitely killed him, didn't she? Because she said it so emphatically. Yeah, and I think that's set up very deliberately as a question that you're always asking yourself. And so you're never actually sure of anything else that she says later on in the book, even when there's an alternate killer presented and everything seems quite straightforward, well, as straightforward as it can be <laughs> in this kind of book, which is not very straightforward at all. Uh, you're still always questioning it because she's talked about inventing people in her life. You think, is she inventing this other person? There's always that tension there, which makes it, I think, frustrating on one level. But if you buy into the central conceit of the book, which I absolutely did, I think it's an amazing book, uh, then it's very enjoyable, even as you want to shake the book and go, I don't know what is real. <laughs> so, Alex, what did you think? What What's your theories at the moment? Right now... I am willing to believe that she did not kill Zack. Mm -hmm. I think that's the only one so far. <laughs> the only one that I'm like willing to confidently say, yeah, I, I think I would believe you on this. Everything else, I don't think I have quite enough material to make a call on one way or another. Okay, 15% of the way into the book. Have you hit the werewolf stuff yet or not? Oh, there is werewolf stuff. Oh, thank God. Yes. I was like, I was like, am I seeing, like, am I seeing some werewolf stuff going on here? Like, is that the, the family condition that she keeps talking about? Yep. Like, is that the thing? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So, all right. Is it real werewolf stuff or is she lying about the werewolf stuff? 
Who knows? Okay, well, that's fair. <laughs> okay, no, to be fair, the werewolf stuff is probably considered, like, you sort of have to accept that one as a truth to go on with the story. I mean, you can keep questioning it on a higher level, but she does a lot of things around, this is my one big secret, this is my one big lie that I tell everybody else, yeah. and because I've told you the truth, you know, you can trust me with it. What I really love about how this is done is... You don't have to ever have a reason for a character being a particular way, but I feel like it makes for a much stronger characterization if you have kind of the seed of what made them unreliable. And in this book, Micah has this seed, this lie that she has been forced to tell since she was very small. She's been forced to lie to the world that she isn't a werewolf. And so when you have this character, she's learned that the truth is not sacred. Yes, and that telling lies is absolutely necessary to protect yourself and to protect what's important to your family absolutely. and the people that love you. And potentially for survival. Yes, definitely yes. for survival. And so she's kind of come untethered from the truth. What is the truth to her? And, and she's constantly being presented with an option of telling the truth. And so if she wants to, she could go and live on the farm upstate with the rest of her dad's family, where most of the werewolves actually live. Um, and there she could be completely open about who she is. She wouldn't have to suppress her menstrual cycle by taking the pill so that she doesn't change. She could be open and truthful, but she doesn't want to. She doesn't like living on the farm. She likes going there for the summer, but coming back, she likes the city. She likes going to school. She wants to go to university. She wants this particular life, and she's accepted the necessity of lying as the price of having that particular life. And I think this is a really interesting link to the second of the main pieces of fiction that we wanted to talk about in this episode, which under the next category, the the characters who are lying to you because they're kind of lying to themselves, Yes. which is the main character, Yuri, from the anime Yuri on Ice. Yuri is one of the most unreliable narrators in the world. He's so unreliable. He's so unreliable. I'm a dime a dozen figure skater, he says, looking directly into your eyes while showing you that he was like number six at the Grand Prix final. One of the top six skaters in the world. I'm a dime a dozen figure skater from Japan. Sure you are, Yuri. Sure you are. But his reason for lying to you is this crippling anxiety that has him truly believing these things about himself. Yes. And it's amazing. It is so good. I think that this is probably my favorite of the types of unreliable. Na- okay, well, that's not true. I do love. <laughs> you love them all. I love, love them, them all. all I love Let's them all. If here. I tell you that I have a favorite, I'm being an unreliable narrator. <laughs> I, I love the characters who lie to you intentionally because they're so much fun. And you yes. get to explore their motivations and like why they're telling the stories that they're t- that they're telling the ones who are lying to you inadvertently who are lying to you because their perception of the world is skewed in some way are equally interesting and you can get some like i said before some amazingly deep character stuff uh when you play with them absolutely and the great thing about there's kind of two levels of this with yuri on ice because you, you kind of realize very fast that yuri is lying to you Uh, You see in the very first episode, this is clearly an internationally renowned figure skater, and he's telling you that he's a dime a dozen. So something's going on there. But the show then sets up this much broader lie by conversing with its own genre. So if you haven't seen it before, dear listeners, you are missing out on a treat. But Yuri on Ice sets itself up as this this young figure skater who has an idol who's always looked up to him and the idol suddenly appears in his hometown and hits on him repeatedly. Appears (laughs) naked in a hot spring. Appears naked in the hot spring at fan service all around and says, let me teach you, let me be your coach. And because it's anime, we're kind of set up to expect that this is fan service. But 10 episodes into the 12 episode run, the show flips this on its head and shows you that actually, before the season began, when he was very, very drunk, Yuri accidentally seduced his idol. And suddenly, your entire understanding of what's happening changes. And your I felt so bad for Victor. Poor Victor. <laughs> he yes. suffers so much. He suffers so I love badly. Him. It's true. There was so many like Tumblr posts and fix and things of people suddenly realizing what was going on. And because 
Yuri had been set up from day one as someone who was kind of unreliable about his own worth and his own charms. And you could, everyone was going through it going, oh, you know, he thinks he's just really ordinary, but clearly Victor has seen something in him and flown all this way. And we're just going with it because it's the trope. Right. right. But there was this really deliberate, he's lying to you because he literally can't remember the central turning point of his own story. And the wonderful thing is that Victor doesn't realise that Yuri has forgotten. Victor thinks that he flew halfway around the world. He For moved, a booty call, yes, for, essentially. For, for, for someone who had like seduced him and brought love and life back into him, back into his life, and then got shy all of a sudden and was too nervous to follow through and oh. Victor is just hanging off him being like but maybe now maybe now I love this show there's another layer of unreliability in this show uh -huh. which is a little bit more subtle and that is Yuri's perception of Victor because when it starts out Victor is absolutely his idol and the shift from unreliable to reliable is a much more smooth and gradual because this is at the beginning yuri completely idolizes and looks up to victor and over the course of the show he gradually learns that oh victor's actually a real person mm -hmm. and is flawed and actually that makes him better and more lovable and i like it because it happens in a mirror image of yuri going through a journey of believing more in himself as well yes. because as he starts to see the flaws in victor and to see victor as someone who is human and lovable he starts to also believe in the version of himself that victor is seeing which is someone who is also worthy of love he can love victor's flaws so therefore maybe victor can love his flaws as well right but he also believes in himself as less flawed right because he starts to actually become more confident and to show more belief in his ability as a skater and as a, a high level athlete and as a person and one of the things with Yuri on Ice was that the fandom that sprung up around it really engaged with this unreliability. Oh, yes. There's so many glorious, glorious fics, like the one that devoured me yesterday when I was supposed to be working on my own edits, called Undiscovered Country, which is a novel-length fic basically about Yuri's anxiety and takes a what-if of what might have happened if Yuri had actually engaged with Victor and they'd gotten to know each other a little bit earlier. And it's one of my it's one of my favorite Yuri on Ice fix of all time. I, I recommend it wholeheartedly. And it's just so good because it shows you there's this extra layer that you get with fan fiction where the reader is already aware of the flaws of the character. So you have this kind of meta conversation that you're having between the reader and the author of the fic where you're agreeing to believe that you didn't already know that Yuri was broken in this particular way. But you do know. So you're reading on two levels at once. And I think it's super cool. It is super cool. And so the mirror image of that, like, I love, I love, I love so much that the Yuri on Ice fandom engaged so strongly with Yuri's unreliable narrator-ness. <laughs> And on the other hand, there's this other fandom, which I fell face first into, <laughs> which completely missed the fact that their central character is an unreliable narrator. The fandom is Kingsman. And if you haven't seen it, Kingsman is a delight and a joy. And it's a love song to all spy action flicks like James Bond and, and that kind of genre. It's really silly. It's very, very so silly. It's really silly. It's so silly. It's over the top. It's a delight. Yes. And when you're reading the fan fiction, the main character, Eggsy, who is kind of the, the audience stand-in, uh, has this mentor, Harry Hart, who is this super spy and a very refined and restrained gentleman of <laughs> exquisite manners and good taste. And the fandom takes that at face value and doesn't ever interrogate the fact that Harry Hart is actually a huge fucking dweeb. <laughs> he has a gun umbrella thing. He has a gun umbrella thing. But besides that, like when his dog died, he got the dog stuffed and he keeps it on a mantelpiece in his bathroom. <laughs> he also collects a lot of dead butterflies and wanted to be a lepidopterist when he was a kid. There's like all of these little hints and winks and nudges that the show gives you to indicate that Harry Hart is actually like all of Harry's refinement and gentlemanly manners 
are learned behaviors rather than innate behaviors. And they're covering up an inner core of absolute dweeb. And none of the fan fiction writers notice this and it drives me crazy. <laughs> but that's because you're meant to be Eggsy and Eggsy falls for it. Oh, Eggsy yes. has to fall for it. Eggsy has to fall for it. Eggsy totally doesn't notice. Eggsy totally doesn't notice. And I wish that Eggsy noticed just a little bit more so that we have, would have some kind of relationship arc sort of similar to Yuri and Victor, where Yuri realizes, oh, this person is not this perfect idol. Like, this person is flawed and I can love them uh, even so. Listen, my friend, if you want the ridiculous um, James Bond parody movies to give you the same relationship as Yuri on Ice does... <laughs> you're not going to get the romance that you're looking for in canon. I'm sorry, Listen, my friend. There is not going to be a kiss. I just have high expectations and I want all of the things all of the time. Well, I wanted to talk about that as an idea of romance because uh -huh. I think the, the double transformation that Yuri and Victor go through in Yuri on Ice and the way it ties into a narrator who is lying to themselves and therefore lying to you is something that is pretty much innate in romance as a genre. So if you think about the way romance books are written, either from a single point of view or from both main characters' point of view, and you can do different things with how much information you give at different points in time if you're using one narrator versus two narrators. But the whole point of developing an internal conflict in romance, and this was based on something by, I think, Michael Haig, who talked about um, the inner conflict and how you use it to create a, a love story, is that each character starts off with a central mistaken belief about the world and about themselves. And that has to come from some kind of wound or some kind of mistaken thing that happened in the past that has led, led them to believe something that is false, whether that is I am unworthy of love or nobody can be trusted or by if I take things for myself, then that's terrible and the world will end. <laughs> so whatever that central wound is, it means they have a bias that colors how they see the world and they cannot find love and completeness and they cannot be a full person while they carry that mistaken belief mm -hmm. around. And the best romance shows you how interacting with somebody else begins to strip away that mistaken belief and how they retreat behind it when they're afraid um, and how they have to learn to step outside it to become someone who can love fully and become the person that they're supposed to be, the true essence of themselves. And so there's always that essence of unreliable narration in a romance novel because you have to see it be stripped away. DJ, I have a request. Yes, Cola. What can I do for you? DJ, would you tell us this using a specific romance novel example? Maybe Captive Prince? <laughs> I would love to talk about Captive Prince <laughs> in the context of unreliable narrators because I have so many feelings. <laughs> tell us all your feelings, please. Okay, well, I'm going to leap ahead a little bit to the third category, which is the one where the narrator doesn't know what the fuck is happening and therefore cannot tell you because the character of Damon, who is the narrator in the Captive Prince series, swings wildly between category three and the category of his own bias or who's lying to himself because of the way information is distributed and because of the way the narration is so tight on him. So... Damon's unreliability is based essentially in one piece of very important information that he does not have. And again, spoilers for all of Captive Prince, which is that he thinks that Laurent does not know who he is. And so he has to hide his identity and, he, and it's, the, it's all going to be terrible if Laurent finds out that he's really Prince Damianos. And we do not know until book three that Laurent knows the whole way through exactly who Damon is. And it's like the moment where we find out about what happened at the banquet that Yuri can't remember because it colours everything that's happened up to that point. However, even before then, Damon is an incredibly unreliable narrator because of his internal biases. So he has very strong ideas based on his own upbringing about, for example, what family members do and wouldn't do to one another. So it takes him a long time to come to terms with the fact that he's been betrayed by his brother because that just doesn't even fit into his mental worldview. And another part of the narration that's very clearly obvious to the reader but not obvious to Damon is the nature of the relationship between Laurent and his uncle who you find out abused Laurent when he was younger and the clues for that are laid very early for the reader and so you can see this extra horrible layer to the way that these two characters interact 
But Damon is completely oblivious, and it's not necessarily that he's stupid, because he's not, and he's not an unobservant person, though he's not as observant as some others, but it just doesn't fit into his own basically decent idea of what people are and the kinds of things that people do to one another. And so the moment in which he discovers that is often a, is a huge turning point and disastrous because it was something that he was unaware of even though the reader has been seeing it. So he's been an unreliable narrator who is telling you truths through the things he's observing and reporting, even if they don't come into his own consciousness, which I think is a very clever use of it. And it's a very great tactic for building tension, right, is when you as a reader are just urging this character, come on, you're not giving him a fair chance, because the reader has figured this thing out, but the character hasn't. Yes, yes, and, and it's, it's, an, it's a romance thing, because often be, when you're in a romance flicking back and forth between two characters, you'll discover something about one of the characters when you're in their head and their narration, and then the tension of it is becomes when you go back to the other person who's still thinking of them as this useless idiot, or as they've completely misunderstood why they are the way they are. And so Damon doesn't understand why Laurent is so cruel and cold, and he doesn't realise that it's a defence for survival that's been built up since this person was a child. And that slowly across the series you see some of that defence be stripped away. And Laurent thinks of Damon as only this person who killed his beloved brother and refuses to see his worth and see him as someone who's basically decent and honourable until they interact. And that's the joy of Captive Prince. It's a, it's a romance that is excruciatingly <laughs> drawn out across three books worth of plot. And because you've got the time across the three books, you can see all of this being played out in slow motion. And it's, it's a... Really, I think it's an excellent lesson in how you can use internal bias and unreliable narration to make a really satisfying love story, but also hold tension for a really long time. Oh, yes. I wonder if that's something that's an intrinsic part of a satisfactory, unreliable narrator narrative, which is the journey from unreliableness to revealing all. And I suspect that this is more true of the first two kinds than the last kind, the one where the narrator doesn't know what's happening. I don't think you always have to reveal it to the narrator as long as the reader's aware. Mm. But when you have a narrator who's lying to themselves, like Yuri is, or like Damon is, or when you have a narrator who's lying to you but trying not to be, like with Liar, by the end of the book you come to a place where the liars have all been stripped away. Well, I think Liar, the book, you don't. And that's what makes it a slightly unusual, unreliable narrator, and that's why it's called what it is. That's Because fair. I think by the time you get to the end of that book, you're still meant to be questioning. You're not meant to have reached a point where everything has been stripped away, even though the narrator is sort of pretending that you're at that point. <laughs> the entire conceit of it is that you're still not convinced. And that's fine, because that's what that book is trying to do. But I agree. I think usually with a, a narration with someone who's lying to you on purpose, there's this feeling of yes, yeah, satisfaction and having arrived at the truth by the end of the book. And Alex, I know that you like to work with this as a technique in non-romance settings as well. Is that something you try to do, try to unveil the truth? <sighs> That's a really interesting question. Do you mind if I take a moment of shameless self-promotion? <laughs> no, how dare you? Nobody. She has a really excellent book and you should all read it. It's going to be amazing. Talk about it. Yes, I have a, I have a book coming out this fall. It's called A Conspiracy of Truths and it is from Saga Press. And guess what? It has an unreliable narrator. No. And I know. <laughs> And it's doing a couple other interesting narrative tricks that I won't spoil for you, but the, the unreliable narrator is the, the core part of it. It's the thing that makes the book go. And I don't think it was so much that I spent the book like unveiling the truth as I sort of came to the conclusion or the, the truth that I unveiled is that there is no one truth. Each person has their own truth. And there can be many, many truths. And maybe we can find an objective truth somewhere at the intersection of all those individual truths. That's really interesting. I, I'm just reminded, and I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, about a book that I read last year when I was on holiday in Italy. And I was reading a book called The Italians, which is more or less sort of modern anthropology slash history by an English journalist who spent some, a long time living in Italy. And he was talking about the difference between journalism traditionally in Italy and journalism in, for example, the United States as 
what is being represented and this idea of journalism as being a central objective truth that must be found and reported versus everybody having their own version of the truth and sometimes what everyone wants to accept as the truth is actually what makes for the best story. And so it can be very frustrating for people moving from one, especially working in the media, from one of these environments to the other because the central belief at the heart of how do you report the news or how do you write a news story is completely different. This idea of alternative facts, I suppose. Propaganda. And propaganda and it being difficult to properly prosecute and to get a sense of public outrage about corruption because there's this sense that everybody has their own truth and that's kind of okay. See, this is fascinating. And I wonder if it comes back to uh, some of the things we were talking about in our very first episode about Omalas and the difference between acknowledging the bad thing and pretending it's not there. Because one thing I definitely have noticed since I've moved to America is that there's this rigidity of belief in stories as they are presented as being literally true. And I wonder that in some European countries, at least that I've lived in, there's a bit more of a scepticism that, of course, the thing in the newspaper is just a story. Somebody wrote it. Whereas in America, frequently, no, that's the truth. An authority has told it to me and thus it is the truth. Oh, yes, I would completely agree with that. That is like the American so way. Interesting. If we see it written down, it must be true. And it, it, it's super interesting to me. I don't know. It's a different way of looking at story. And I wonder if that affects what gets read and responded to in books. Well, do you want to move on to talking a little bit more about the third type then? Yes. And the last story from our trio of tent poles. Yes. So Freya mentioned this one before, and it's category three is the one where the narrator doesn't know what the fuck is happening and thus can't tell you. And so this is based in ignorance. It's based in like their inability to perceive anything clear enough to misinterpret it, because that's the difference between category two and category three. Category two does perceive the world and then misinterprets it and misrepresents what's going on because of that core misinterpretation. But category three, they're just completely oblivious. So anyone want to volunteer to talk about The Women Men Don't See by James Tiptree Jr.? So yeah, the short story that we are using to illustrate this one is, as Alex said, The Women Men Don't See, which is a short story by James Tiptree Jr. And it is essentially a story from the point of view of a man who is in a plane crash with the pilot of the plane and two women and essentially again spoilers it's about what happens when aliens land and the women ask to leave with the aliens because it's better than staying on earth and there's a lot of examination in there both in explicitly in the dialogue but also implied and in the internal narration to do with the nature of men versus women and their roles in the society in the world at the time and the idea of this man being so unable to see what reality of the lived experience is of these women that there's so much going on that the reader can see is happening but just never comes into his mind at all and he's just constantly surprised and confused and doesn't really realize what's going on. I really like it too. There's this really great imposed narrative that he gives the reader of his thoughts and concerns and the things that he's thinking about. And the way that he views these women as things that he can kind of move around and manipulate and is always about what he wants and needs. And so autonomy on their parts is deeply confusing to him. And he's always trying to guess at their inner lives. Well, he, first of all, he starts off with not really thinking about women as having inner lives at all or presuming that it's going to be what he, what fits with his own belief. Like when they're in the, in the plane going down, he turns around to comfort them and then is confused when they're being quite quiet and calm. And even before that, like in the first sentence or two of the story, it says something about like he noticed like a female blur. He doesn't even recognize them as individuals it's just like oh yeah there's like some sort of female shaped thing yes. over there and tiptree she does this kind of thing incredibly well and there is obviously a second layer again to the unreliability of the narration when it comes to gender roles in this particular short story 
So James Tiptree Jr. was the pen name of a woman called Alice Sheldon, who wrote in the 60s and 70s and 80s about, she read a lot of science fiction and fantasy writing and published under the name James Tiptree Jr. And everybody thought that she was a man called James who was just famously reclusive and published all these short stories and was incredibly good at writing women. And if you think about reading this story from the point of view of someone, if you think it's written by a man, and then you find out that the person who was writing it is a woman, there's a whole other layer of it being unreliably narrated. I was going to bring that up too, yes! <laughs> because it colours the way that you think about, on the second level, you're thinking about the person who's written this, and if and certainly Tiptree got all of these letters and acclaim from women going, oh, I've never had a man, you know, write the female experience so closely. Well done, well done. And then a lot of people turning around when they found out that it was actually somebody called Alice Sheldon and thinking about the stories very differently. So this story in particular and a couple of the others that Tiptree wrote around gender have got that extra unreliable layer, which I think is really great. I think that's one something that unreliable narrators can do, which is make you ask questions that you might not have asked otherwise. Yes. I think that's pretty cool. That there's mm. one there's one piece of media that I super love that kind of falls into this category. And I don't know if either of you have watched the movie The Handmaiden. I think I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it. I haven't watched it, but I've read the book it was based on. Ah, so it is a Korean thriller heist kind of thing. And it's a queer movie about two women and a man, kind of. But it's told in three parts. And in the first part, you are entirely from the point of view of the handmaiden, who is a young Korean thief who is hired to basically go and con a wealthy noblewoman to help her uh, associate marry this woman and then kill her for her money. And for the first part of the movie, you fully believe that this noblewoman is this naive waif who is completely helpless and the handmaiden is slowly falling for her and they fall in love and everything is beautiful and then at the crucial moment the noblewoman strands the handmaiden under her name to be locked up in the mental house instead and runs away with the person you were meant to think was tricking her and suddenly the whole movie shifts point of view and starts again from the beginning and starts to show you what's really happening. And then it does it again. It's amazing. That's delightful. That's exactly how the book is structured as well. So it's based on the novel Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, except it's set in Victorian era Britain rather than being set in Korea. And it's got exactly that structure. It has part one where you get the, the handmaid or the, the woman who's sent to be a maid and sort of con slash seduce this wealthy heiress. And then you get in the second part, the heiress's point of view, and you discover more about how she set up this deception. So it sounds like it's actually a fairly uh, faithful adaptation story-wise. I really, I really I want to see it. I love it so much. I really do. And particularly because they're kind of, it's a very different experience the second watch through. It's like the first watch through is the third category of unreliable narrator because the handmaid is being kept completely in the dark. She thinks she's tricking in one direction and the audience believes her. And then in the second part, the audience is aware that they're being lied to. So it's kind of the first one. The noblewoman is lying to you. And then the final piece unwraps it all for you. So it kind of goes, it cycles through the different kinds of unreliability. And I think that, that third category where the narrator doesn't know what is happening, that's the kind of story that usually does reward a reread when things are revealed to you, because then you can go back and see what kind of clues have been dropped. But I think we're going to talk more about writing unreliable narration and points of view and stuff a bit later well, on. I mean, I don't know about you two, but when I watched episode 10 of Yuri on Ice, I immediately went back and rewatched the first episodes. The one where we learn that Victor's known Victor has been in love with Yuri all along. Yes, yes. I don't think I went back and watched it, but I certainly clicked on a lot of Tumblr posts that were having very <laughs> loud caps locks feelings with illustrative screen caps. And it was basically the same thing. That is how Tumblr how Tumblr tumbles. Yep. Yep, save me some time. Did we have anything more to say about the unreliable narrators specifically, or shall we move on to like some writing advice kind of stuff? Well, I was wondering if Freya wanted to talk a little bit about heists and cons leading out of Handmaiden. Yes, and I was thinking about this 
uh, as someone who has been trying to outline and write a heist novel, uh, very much still in the outlining stage because I threw a little tantrum when it got too hard and ran away and wrote a romance novel instead, but I'm coming back to it. And we are very grateful for you who have done so because we loved it very much. It's an amazing book. But now I am trying to get my head around writing heists and cons in book form, and I went and read a few examples of the genre to get a sense of how different people have done it, because the most well-known and I think the most effective heists and cons are in visual media. Yes. So something like Ocean's Eleven works beautifully as a piece of unreliable narration because the only person who knows what's going on the whole time is Danny Ocean who set up this whole thing and there's a lot of things where you think things are going wrong but they're actually going right but because there is no internal narration in that story you're never inside anybody's head you're presented with different angles and different scenes that pretend to show you what is the truth or what is the secret this person's been carrying around but you're never in the action and you're never inside the head of the mastermind so you are surprised by the structure of the entire heist or the structure of the con and that's what makes it a satisfying narrative i have a mini rant <laughs> related to this topic and related to unreliable narrators <sighs> guys i really really hate street magicians or illusionists you might call them or stage magicians <laughs> i hate them i hate them so much I hate them with the fiery passion of a thousand thousand suns, <laughs> but I love con artists. I love con artists. I love unreliable narrators. Now, you may be wondering to yourself, Alex, why do you love con artists so much if you hate stage magicians? They have the same skill set. And here is what I have to tell you, dear listeners and Freya and Macy. The difference <laughs> between a con artist and a stage magician, the thing that makes them makes one of them okay and cool and fun, and the other one absolutely someone that I will punch in the face given the slightest excuse to do so, <laughs> is that a con artist will tell me the secret. The con artist will always have oh. a scene at the end of the film or the end of the episode where it reveals to me how they did the trick. Okay, first of all, I'm just a little stuck on the irony of the fact where you're like the one that is cool and fun and great is the one that in real life causes a lot of damage and angst and cons people out the of money. The one that's cool and fun and great in fiction. In fiction. Yes, that's hilarious. Alex, have you seen Now You See Me? Yes, I have. Please, if it's a film about con artists, I have seen it. Anyway, but a stage magician will never show me the secret. Like they and they get smarmy about it, and that's the part that I hate most. Is that they <laughs> they will stand there saying like, "Oh, a magician never reveals his secret," and I'm like, "Go fuck yourself." See, this does not. Uh, th this entirely is in character for you, and I can see you flouncing about it. In my this mind. is absolutely on brand. This is like 100% <laughs> hashtag on brand. Uh, anyway, that was my mini rant about stage magicians, unreliable narrators, and con artists. So, Alex. <sighs> yes. <laughs> yes. What do you want? What do you want from me? How do you do the magic trick in text? How do I? Oh, my. What a great transition this was. My goodness. I'm really proud of us. We did not plan this. You did not plan this. You didn't play it. Well, you, how were you supposed to know that I was going to rant about stage magicians? I don't know, but I have the accent that says I'm telling the truth. So you must believe me. I do believe you. <laughs> you are omniscient and all-powerful. So how do I do the trick? The first part of the trick for me is that I have to get really, really, really deep in the character's head. I have to empathize with them as a complex and rounded character as much as possible. I have to get as deep in their mind as I can possibly get. And that makes some interesting, weird problems happen like 10 steps down the line. Because when I'm writing, it's really easy to do the thing. You just figure out what this person's biases are and what things get them really angry and then you let them be petty and you let them skew the truth a little bit because we all do that you know like when think of a time in your life when someone slighted you in some way or snubbed you and you <laughs> ranted about it later and maybe you 
embroidered a little bit what a terrible person that person is. Or you, when you were telling someone, oh yeah, and then she said, me, 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 you know, you maybe emphasize or, or embroider the nastiness of the tone that this person used. It's little things like that. Like you're going to skew it to make it a better story. And an unreliable narrator is always looking for the best story. That's fascinating. It's reminding me of the way you talked about coming at character yeah. versus the way I come at stories from plot, because I do the trick a completely different way. Hmm. And I will talk about it, but you finish yours first. Yeah. So and the other thing that I was going to mention is that like, they're always they, the unreliable narrator wants to be a sympathetic person because they're sympathetic to them, themselves, because that's something that's true for all of us. Like, even if we don't much like ourselves, we always tend to see ourselves of the heroes as the heroes of our own stories. And we're always like this. We see ourselves as the protagonist of whatever we're doing. And so does an unreliable narrator. The unreliable narrator thinks that they're the center <laughs> of everything. And then everything else sort of like spools and cascades from that. But Freya, you come at it from plot? Yes. And I'm thinking about whether this is a difference of the type of unreliable narrator that we're working with or not. Because obviously you're coming at it, Alex, from the point of view of an unreliable narrator who is to a certain extent lying on a little bit on purpose because they know that their job is to tell the best story and they're quite comfortable with moving within truth and up and down the spectrum of truth to serve the story. Is that a fair statement, do you think? I would say so, yeah, because in A Conspiracy of Truths, there is one particular line where the main character, Chant, says, it doesn't matter if it happened that way in real life, as long as the story is good, as long as it's truer than truth. Right. And so when I'm thinking about my way of constructing for example, the heist story that I'm outlining, it's more coming at it from a mixture of personal bias and missing information. Mm. So my narrator is very deliberately not the mastermind character because if you make the mastermind the narrator, then either you have to have an inherently very elusive and unreliable third-person narration where there is stuff missing from the narration, mm-hmm. or you have to show everything up front, which is less satisfying because you haven't got that nice thing of all the pieces falling into place. So I'm using as my narrator, my point of view character, somebody who does not have all the pieces at the beginning. And so trying to decide how the narration unfolds is about, I have, I have to know as the writer, the whole picture up front. And then I have to decide at which point in the story does the narrator become aware of each individual piece. And the other layers on top of that is to do with character. It's to do with um, the way that the, the narrator sees all of the other characters in this story is inherently wrong at the beginning, and she comes to a realisation about all of them at some point during the story. So I have to map out how does her viewpoint of them and how does her belief about them change over the story and because of what, so what has to happen in each scene for her viewpoint to shift slightly, but also what is the grand plan that the mastermind has and at which point does that grand plan become apparent to the other people, but also to the reader? Which is why I got a headache and ran away and wrote a romance novel instead. Well, so you're, you're writing in third person, right? I'm writing in third person, but it's quite close third to, to the narrator. So the narrator is not actively lying to you, but the narrator has an element of bias in what she notices and what the, the, I guess the assumptions that she leaps to about the people that she meets, because she's meeting most of them for the first time at the start of the book. But the person that is who knows everything is someone she's known for a long time, but she also has mistaken beliefs about. But it's quite a close third for, the, for all of that. So you discover things as she discovers things. So that was one thing I was going to ask about, is I feel like there's, there's two pieces, right? There's at what point does a character figure things out, and at what point does a reader figure things out? And this was kind of reminding me a little bit of a thread that your agent, Alex, had today, Dong Wan, about writing as an empathetic act. Oh, that was such a good thread. Such a good thread. We'll link to it. But essentially that the writer is using their empathy for the reader to kind of lead the reader on a, on a dance with them. And I think that's particularly true in heist and mystery novels. And with unreliable narrators, like I'm certain that Justine Lavalestier spent a lot of time thinking about when the reader would figure out what in Liar. And I'm wondering, do you tend to do that deliberately, either of you, when you're 
looking at your book and saying, here is where I want the reader to realize this secret? I don't have a specific point where I say I want them to know it by X point. I do want them to have figured it out sometime before the end of the book. But I, I mean, I drop crumbs every now and then, and some readers will figure it out way early. Some readers will figure it out way, way late. Some won't figure it out until they get that sort of smash cut to the truth at the end. <laughs> I, I was thinking about how I do unreliable narrators, because I don't think of myself as doing them, but I do, I think. Mm -hmm. Because I don't write characters who are lying so much as I write characters who are keeping secrets. Right. That counts. Right. It, it totally does, but it, it doesn't feel to me like it does because they're never lying to you on purpose. They're lying to themselves. Right. They're a type two. Exactly. But then I typically want the reader to figure out the lie fairly early. So I definitely have a point. And Freya, you've read my book, Hagstone. And one of the key points is that the main character has had something very traumatizing happen to her before the book begins. And the reader figures out very quickly what the thing that happened to her was about, but not exactly what happened. And I think that that happens by like 50 pages in, you kind of know that it's got to do with one aspect of this character. And so I kind of do plan that out. I think it depends also on the reader, because you cannot absolutely. write a book that will absolutely control, like puppets, every single person who is going to read it. And so you have to build in a certain amount of tolerance for some readers coming to a realization quite early and some readers coming to it later. So obviously when I've been working on my, my book that I finished, I sent it to a lot of different people to get an opinion and to get reactions from, and people worked out different secrets at different points. Mm -hmm. So some people, I think it depends on how genre savvy you are, whether you are looking out for particular points, whether it was the identity of one of the two main characters, which is a secret that he is keeping for most of the book. Some people work that out incredibly early <laughs> with the earliest, the earliest breadcrumb. And some people weren't quite sure, but when the revelation came, they thought, oh, you know, maybe I thought so. And I, di I didn't want that to happen at one, any one particular point. And it's the same with, obviously, there's a bit of intrigue and secrets being unraveled throughout the book. I very deliberately didn't want the reader to have the entire story because I, the, one of the final scenes is a great revelation scene. And I wanted some of the revelations in that scene to be new to the reader, even if it was just the very final cherry on the top of the whole picture. I wanted some of that to be new and to be surprising, but I didn't really mind to what extent the reader had figured out the rest of it because I was showing you one of the characters unraveling all of these clues. So it would be a bit disingenuous to hope that nobody would figure anything else out and it would be a very confusing and frustrating book if I was sort of coyly <laughs> showing you someone discovering something and then refusing to give you any of the details to let you work it out for itself. So it's, it's got the aspects of a mystery in that sense. Well, right, it's, um... But I don't think you can ever work out exactly when someone's going to realise something. You just have to throw it at a lot of readers and say, does this more or less work? I mean, I think it comes back to um, the theory of books as puzzles. Do readers engage with it as a mystery they want to figure out? And which parts of the books do they engage with in that way? And I think that if you're doing your job well, the reader wants to understand your main character, right? So having an unreliable narrator is a great hook to kind of bring the reader along and have them engaged and asking questions, which is really what you want of a reader. There's not a lot of prescriptivist rules that I support for writing, but the one rule that I will feel comfortable in saying that I support 100% is that if you are writing in first person, you don't have an excuse. You have to interrogate what parts of your narrator are unreliable, like what things, what biases they have. If you are not doing that, you're wasting your time. Why are you even writing in first person? If you don't want to do that, just write in third. But if you're writing in first person, your narrator is unreliable in some way. Deal with it. Do something with it. <laughs> I think that's fair. I wanted to make a quick point about fan fiction. Ooh, yes. And the way that fan fiction uses unreliable narrators, which we talked about a little bit about when you were talking about Yuri on Ice. And I mean, that's a slightly different case because you're talking about a character who is unreliable in canon and then the fandom engaging with that unreliable narrator in a way that is satisfying. But I think... One of the ways that fanfiction can be incredibly interesting in this sense is that we come at fanfiction again with a shared weight of canon knowledge. 
And so there is this pre-built-in amount of information that the reader knows, but the narrator might not, depending on who the, the author chooses to use as the writer. So, for example, if you use minor characters or even original characters as a point-of-view character to tell a story about a world or a set of characters that are already well-known to the readers, there's this wonderful sense of we know something that you don't, and you have that tension pulling you through. And actually, I mean, now I've said that I'm talking about fan fiction, I want to divert again. Megan Whalen-Turner does this in her own book series, the Queen's Thief series, because what the third book in the series is from the point of view of a character that we haven't met before, and who does not know the characters that we have just spent two books getting to know very intimately. So the readers know these characters and know a bit about the truths of them, what kind of person they are, but the point of view character has no idea, yeah. and he brings his own biases to it, and the entire fun of the book is watching this person slowly stumbling towards the knowledge and understanding that the readers have had since page one. It's great, and it's something that happens in fan fiction a lot, but it can only happen when everybody is going into the story with a huge amount of shared understanding. Absolutely. I know there's some fics in Harry Potter and Naruto that do this a bunch. There's this long-running fic in the Naruto fandom about the apartment complex manager where Naruto lives, for example, which is just this, like, <laughs> why, why? You know, why? But a framing character can definitely be unreliable and very in a really interesting way. There was some Yuri on Ice fix for a while about college friends of Yuri's who were watching him and his hot husband with silver hair and not knowing anything about that they were ice skaters. Oh, yes, I think I... These were like Tumblr fix and... Right. No, it was the one where... It was the one where, like, there was one about a bartender, I think. Yes. But this is a, a super fun thing in fandom when somebody issues a challenge of some kind and people engage with it and write it differently. And there's fan fiction that uses framing narratives, like those that pretend to be writing, I don't know, journal articles or journalism yes. or a framing narrative that is completely different that, again, comments on things that have happened in the text or characters that we know more about. And that can be a really interesting way of being unreliable. Again, it's to do with what is the objective truth. And it's obviously, especially if you're writing something like a newspaper article, it's someone who think, who is reporting the facts. And the delicious part is that you, as a reader of the canon or someone who's devoured the canon, knows the emotional truths or the character truths that are below whatever this story is. And it's all to do with the interplay between the two texts. And that's one of my favourite fics that I think we'll likely be talking about on a later episode, which is uh, written by the victors. Oh, yes. Yes. But that is another episode. But I think we have gone over an hour at this point, friends. And as you can see, clearly Alex is the only one who loves unreliable narrators, and the rest of us were just cruelly dragged along on this diversion in which we have utterly no interest. Well... And if we sounded enthusiastic, then it's because we were faking it. It's because we love Alex very, very much, and we want her Aww. to be happy. Oh, you guys are so good to me. Thank you so much for coming on this amazing, wonderful journey of joy and delight and good times. Have a great night, guys. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. I never managed to finish that thought that I began, about how getting in deep empathy with your unreliable narrator causes problems later on. Like when you go back to edit the book, and your editor starts questioning things, and you blithely explain them to her, and then she replies, that's not true though, is it? And then you realize that goddammit the bastard caught even you in his web of fibs. And then you do a happy dance because, well, if you can trick yourself, you can trick anybody. The long and short of it is that unreliable narrators are awesome. But you know what else is awesome? I do, because we have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence on March 28th, Macy will be teasing Freya and I while we wail and cry about one of our favorite tropes of all time. Here's a hint. It involves unshakable loyalty, oaths of fealty, and me, screeching once again about the Heroes Gamos. 
So if you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. All our individual social media handles are listed on the show's About pages. We would love to hear from you. Questions? Comments? Breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com or at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. And by the way, you have exquisite good taste.